What Does God Expect From Me? is a nine-part sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Wait, nine parts, Ten Commandments? What? Woe unto thee, O Israel! You have sinned a great sin in the sight of God. You are not worthy to receive these Ten Commandments. We will not live by your commandments. We are free. There is no freedom without the law. Did you carve those tablets to become a prince over us? Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. We wanted to find out whether people in our area could name all Ten Commandments. So we sent our lead pastors out into the community to get the answer. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, uh, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Um, Let me see. Well, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or property. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Honor thy father and thy mother. Remember to remember to keep keep holy the day or the Sabbath. Very good, very good. And um, you got four left. There's only there's there's only one God. Thou shalt not be no other God before them. Well, it's great to have you in worship today, and as you've been hearing, we are in a series on the Ten Commandments that we're calling, What Does God Expect From Me? And uh, I'm so glad you're here to be a part of this experience. Eric Little refused to run on Sunday. You've probably seen that scene from the classic movie, Chariots of Fire, Even though he had prepared to run in the 1924 Olympics in the 100-meter dash, when he found out that his heat was on Sunday, Eric Little said, no way. It was against his conviction to run on what he considered his Christian Sabbath day. Now, i got a question for you. What do you think about that? Do you think that Eric Little was right in that conclusion or... Do you believe that maybe he was being just a bit too strict? Well, we're going to come back to that story just a bit later in the message. But the fourth commandment that we come to today is very, very interesting. Look at it with me from God's word. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That is the fourth commandment. Now, if we're being honest, that raises a number of questions. I mean, first of all, we're not farmers, most of us, right? In fact, most of us live a far too sedentary life. We sit in a chair behind a computer. We don't get enough physical activity. 
does this really apply to us today? And after all, that's from the Old Testament. I, I, I thought we're under a New Testament now, a new covenant with God. So does that still apply? It also raises the question, should we be observing a Sabbath on Saturday, the original Sabbath, or on Sunday, which many Christians in the first century began to shift to Sunday because Jesus had risen from the dead on Sunday. And so that became the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath, as it's been called. How should we feel about this very unusual commandment? Well, we're going to address some of those questions today, but I want to say up front that I believe a failure to respect and to properly observe this Sabbath principle is the cause of more physical, emotional, mental, (coughs) spiritual, and indeed family breakdown and deterioration than perhaps just about any other thing. So let's jump in together. I want us, first of all, to see this commandment in the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at it in the New Testament And then we're going to end today by applying it to our lives and and some takeaways that, that we should seriously, seriously work into our own lives. So let's get started. First of all, this commandment in the Old Testament. Well, that's pretty simple, actually. The Jewish people took this commandment very seriously. The command was clear. Don't work on the Sabbath. God worked for six days in creation, and he rested on the seventh, not because he was tired, not because he needed a nap. God was literally teaching his people a pattern of work and rest and work and rest and work and rest. And God says, one day in seven, I want you to set aside as a holy day, and I want you to stop your normal activity. God reiterated that as he gave them manna in the wilderness. Some of you may remember from the Pentateuch how that worked. God provided manna every day. They went out and gathered it. They ate it. But if they gathered more than they needed, remember what happened? It rotted. It turned putrid, literally with maggots in it. Pretty disgusting. But on Friday, the day before the Sabbath... They could gather more than they needed because they needed to get enough for the Sabbath day where the manna did not fall. God was teaching them to make preparation for the Sabbath. And those who did not prepare went hungry on the Sabbath. But that extra that they gathered did not go bad. As you read through the pages of the Old Testament, what you find is that it was unlawful for them to build a fire on the Sabbath day or to plant seed or to harvest crops or to take goods to the market. In fact, the very gates of the city were to be shut down on the Sabbath day as a powerful message to everyone, believer and unbeliever, that this day is holy and it is to be set apart. In Numbers 15, you read an interesting story. One man was caught gathering wood on the Sabbath day, which was against the law. The people convened a court very quickly, and they determined 
that he should be stoned to death for violation of the Sabbath. Now, some of you, especially if you're new to the Bible, you may go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This is mind-blowing. Why would God ever give a prohibition like this, a commandment to take one day in seven for rest? Well, I want to give you three quick reasons which are at the heart of this commandment in the Old Testament. First of all, was that God wanted them to have a day of rest. Some of you are watching Major League Baseball these days as we're working down toward the final series, the final playoff. And if you're a baseball fan, you know that starting pitchers don't pitch every day, day after day. Physiologists and baseball experts have concluded that They need at least three days, more if you can get it, but at least three days between starts if you're pitching in the major leagues. Now, why is that? Because the human arm can only take so much stress before it gives out. If you've got a car and you look at your owner's manual, it'll probably tell you, depending on the age of your car, to change the oil every three to 5,000 miles. Now, you can push that if you want to. You can ignore that. You may say, look, pastor, I'll get 10,000 miles. I'll get 15, 20, 30,000 miles. And you know what? You probably can. Outwardly, you might not even notice a difference. But you're doing damage that you're unaware of. There's an old ad where a mechanic looked in the camera and said, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. And if you go that long without changing that oil and doing basic maintenance, you're going to have a big bill on your hands later. God Almighty, who designed us, knows that we're not made to go day after day after day, week after week, without appropriate rest. The Sabbath day was made for rest. One young man in church confided that his father died at a very young age, 42 in fact, a very young age to die. And he said, at my dad's funeral, my mother, in the midst of her grief, leaned over to me and said, son, your dad was an extreme type A. I mean, he just drove and drove every single day of his life. He And then she said, he was like a spinning top. He just spun and spun and spun until he was done. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, or if you're window shopping Christianity today, wondering what this is all about, this Sabbath principle is one that if you break it, it has a way, hear me, of breaking you. It's just the way God has designed life. And if you don't honor it and observe it now, my concern for you is you will honor and observe it one day, even against your will and without your planning, either in a hospital room, flat on your back, in a psychiatric ward, or God forbid, at an early grave. God gave this commandment for rest. But second, God wanted his people to have a day of worship. In other words, he said in the text we read, it's to be a holy day, not just a day to lie around and read the newspaper and catch some serious football on on the afternoon, right? Now, all of those things are fine, but God said, this is a day to stop working and start worshiping. 
Notice this passage from Leviticus chapter 23. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a day, catch this phrase, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. And they took that seriously. That's the day they came together as a community to worship God. It's interesting, when you read in the book of Psalms, that's kind of the song book in the Bible, a number of the Psalms have this title over the Psalm. It says, a song for the Sabbath day. And just as an artist painting on a canvas, if you watch them, they'll periodically step back from the canvas to get a broader perspective on what's going on here. God has designed that we, one day in seven, would step back from the rat race of life to remind ourselves of what's really important, to worship the creator and the designer of us and of this world, and to acknowledge that, you know, ultimately, we're not really in control, are we? It's a day for rest. It's a day for worship. But third... I'm going to suggest a third reason and purpose here that's kind of a serendipity that comes out of the first two. The Sabbath day deepened family relationships. In Exodus chapter 16, there's a verse that speaks to what's supposed to happen on the Sabbath day. And and notice what it says. Everyone is to stay where he or she is on the Sabbath day. No one, no one is to go out. Whoa, wait a minute. You mean as families, they were supposed to be together? Other than maybe getting together with the community for worship, you mean they were supposed to get reconnected as a family? Well, what did they do when they stayed together? I mean, they had no TV. There were no ball games on, no computers, no computer games. They couldn't surf the web. They had no smartphones. There was no Xbox. Are you kidding me? What are we going to do? Talk to one another? Maybe have a little conversation? What a concept that is. Now, I know some teenagers that are getting nervous right now. And they're sitting there, and they're thinking, boy, I hope my mom or dad doesn't get some really good idea right now that we're going to spend a day together as a family because we don't want to do that. We want to do what pleases us, right? And I'm sure way back then, a lot of those kids probably wanted to do other things. But notice what God said here in this interesting passage from Isaiah 58. It says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please, notice how he repeats that phrase, doing as you please, doing as you please, Or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So it's to be a set-aside day where we don't just do our own thing, but where we rest, where we worship God together, and where we reconnect as a family. 
What a great idea. But you know what? Like many great ideas, the legalist within Judaism began to push this wonderful principle of Sabbath to a bizarre extreme. If you're curious, you can read about some of this in the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are like commentaries on the Old Testament. And here's what the extreme legalists did. In order to ensure that people observe the Sabbath, they came up with 1,521 ways that you could break the Sabbath. Can you believe that? 1,521 ways written down that people could break the Sabbath. For instance, since you weren't supposed to go out, they came up with what was an appropriate Sabbath day's journey. And they determined that it was 750 yards from your front door. You could go 750 yards, but not a yard further or you were breaking the Sabbath. They determined that you could not carry a pen, a writing instrument. If you were a scribe, you couldn't carry a pen on the Sabbath because that would be carrying a burden. You shouldn't wear a heavy coat, they said on the Sabbath, because if you got too hot, you might be tempted to take the heavy coat off and carry it, which would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. You could not swat a mosquito or a flea on the Sabbath. That would be breaking the law. If you're a woman, get this, women, you could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath day lest you see a gray hair and pluck it, and that would constitute reaping, which would break the Sabbath command. Now, that wouldn't be a problem today with so many women chemically dependent. (laughs) But that was a problem then. You see, they took the very principle that God intended to be a blessing and they made it a bane. The very thing God intended to be a benefit to them, they made it a horrible burden for the people. And so what did Jesus do when he came along into that kind of environment? Well, let's talk now for a moment about the Sabbath in the New Testament. Because what you'll see if you read the Gospels is that Jesus really clashed with the legalist of his day. Let me give you an example. Once his disciples were walking through a grain field, they didn't have fast food. So their fast food was you pick a head of grain and you eat it. That's fast food. And so as they're walking through the fields, the Pharisees saw them doing that and they challenged them. Why do your disciples break the Sabbath? Because to them, picking the grain was harvesting Rubbing it in your hands to get the chaff away was threshing, and as they ate it, they were grinding with their teeth. Three laws broken right there out of their 1,521. And Jesus was aghast at their attitude. He said, look, guys, you're putting burdens on people that are too heavy to bear. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. On another occasion, Jesus was in the synagogue, and a man with a withered hand was there. And Jesus said to this poor man, stretch out your hand. He was going to heal him. And the Pharisees challenged him and said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? To them it was not. We are told 
that doctors, medical doctors in that day, if someone had a wound, had broken a bone or something, they would not even bind it up on the Sabbath day. The person would have to grit it out and wait until the next day until the doctor would take care of the wound. And again, Jesus was incredulous. He said, which of you, if you had an ox fall in the ditch, would not take it out on the Sabbath day? Because you care for that animal. How much more valuable are people than that? Guys, guys, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so Jesus clashed with these rigid legalists within Judaism, and it was clear that he struggled and wanted to make some changes in this new covenant that he had come to bring. So I want you to see two passages in the Bible, one in Colossians and one in Romans, which I believe indicate to us that we are no longer bound by the letter of that Old Testament law. First one in Colossians reads like this. This is a great chapter, by the way. I hope you'll take the time to read the entire chapter. It's one of my favorites in all the Bible. It says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code. Now, the written code is a reference to the Old Testament covenant that, we, that the Old Testament people had with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. You might think of it like this. God had one will in the Old Testament, but when Jesus died on the cross, he took that old will with all of its regulations that were impossible to keep, by the way. By the way, just a quick footnote here. If as we go through these Ten Commandments, if you don't start feeling, wow, God set the bar really high, didn't he? Wow, it's impossible for any human to really keep these commandments. If you don't begin to feel that way, you're probably not listening real carefully. You, you, you probably aren't getting it, honestly, because that's the whole point. The straight edge of the law shows us how crooked we really are. It shows us that we can't keep this. We were in an impossible situation. That's why it says the Old Testament regulations were against us. None of us could keep them, in other words. But when Jesus came and died on the cross, he made a way for us to be acceptable to God, not because of perfect performance, which none of us could ever do anyway, but because Jesus' performance was perfect. And when we're in him, we are acceptable to God. Imagine you have a rich uncle, and he writes a will. He's worth millions. He writes a will in 1995, but even though he knows you, he never mentions you at all in the will. You've got nothing coming from your rich uncle. But just through the course of time, you... You organically just build a better relationship with him. You get to know him better. You guys become good friends. And your uncle writes a new will in 2014 and includes you in that new will for $5 million. And then your dear uncle dies in 2015. Now, question, which one of those wills is valid? Praise God, the second one. 
and you are rich, baby. You are rich because it's not the first will that's binding and valid. It's the second. And we are no longer bound by that old will, that old covenant. We are under the new covenant, and that is good news indeed. In fact, it goes on to say, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled what God really intended through those Old Testament laws. Let's look at one other passage in the New Testament, and that's Romans 14. Romans 14, listen to what it says. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. In other words, some people have different convictions on these things. Some believe it's okay to eat meat that's been offered to idols or whatever. Others are pure vegetarians. Look, don't get bent out of shape over stuff like that, he's saying. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Now, what does all that mean? It's another wonderful chapter. And that basically says, look, as genuine followers of Jesus, we're going to disagree on some conviction areas. And that's okay. In fact, it's normal. It's to be expected. These aren't things that Christianity hangs on, but they're personal conviction areas. And look, it's saying basically, don't beat one another up over stuff like that. Don't refuse to fellowship with someone just because they have a little different conviction over which day you ought to observe, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, or every day ought to just be the same. Have some grace with one another when it comes to those kinds of issues. So that's the tone. That's the tone that we get in the New Testament. And again, let me say it again. This is the only one of these Ten Commandments that is not explicitly repeated in this new will that God's made, this new covenant, the New Testament, which we're all under. So some of you are sitting there right now and you're going, all right, I'm still a little bit confused, Pastor. We've talked about the old, we've talked about the new, but what are we supposed to do with all this? Well, I'm really glad you're asking because the Bible was not written just to give us information. It was written to change our lives. So as we go down home stretch, I want to quickly suggest three applications of this that I would urge you to take seriously and apply in your own life. Number one, be wise and avoid the extremes of legalism on the one hand and license on the other. Now, I grew up in a culture down in Tennessee where in our little church uh, and in my particular family, we observe Sunday as a Christian Sabbath day, and it was really set apart. And different. Let me explain how it was different. Most of us were farmers in that community, and so we worked hard manual labor six days a week, but on Sunday, you didn't. So nobody was supposed to mow the yard on Sunday. 
Nobody was supposed to go out in the field. In fact, if somebody was out plowing or reaping or something on Sunday, it was tantamount to having rejected the faith if you were a Christian. I mean, you just didn't do that, okay? Uh, The most we would do, we didn't work in the garden. The most we'd do is maybe go pick a tomato or something if we needed one to eat, all right? We didn't play cards on Sunday, although that was perfectly okay every other day, but you didn't do that. It was too frivolous to do on Sunday. My mother, early on, even discouraged us from playing ball on Sunday afternoons. That changed a little bit later. But that, that was a different day. It was to be set apart. And here's something. We were urged in our church not to go to restaurants on Sunday. Why? Because you were causing other people to have to work. Why would you do that? We, we, were, we were taught not to go buy things at a store, again, because you're causing other people to work. Now, you may listen to all that and go, well, boy, that's a bit extreme, don't you think? And I suppose some of those things were. But you know what? I'm not concerned about any of that for most of you. I'm concerned about the opposite extreme. You know what I think? I think for probably most of you listening to me right now, there is nothing special about Sunday at all. There's no Sabbath that you observe at all. In fact, Sunday for many of you is the most hectic day of the week. It's the day you try to cram in everything that you just couldn't get done the rest of the week. And here's where my concern lies. For many people, the problem is not legalism. The problem is license. Anything goes And there's no observance of the Sabbath principle in our lives. Peter warns us, act as free men and women and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. You see, we can cop the attitude that I've often heard, look, we're free in Christ, we're free in the Lord. And that becomes a sort of license to do pretty much anything you want. That's not what freedom's about. Freedom is not the freedom to do anything you want. Freedom is the opportunity and the empowerment to do what pleases the Lord. That's real freedom. Secondly, I would urge you today to be disciplined and designate one day a week in your personal life for rest and worship. Designate one day a week. You say, well, pastor, uh, that can't be Sunday for me or that can't be Saturday for me. I I know what you mean. It's the same for me. The most hectic day of the week for me is Saturday. The second most hectic day of the week often is Sunday. So those can't be days of rest for me. So what Debbie and I have chosen is Friday as the day we try to set apart and make special. We don't do it perfectly. Sometimes ministry calls for involvement and engagement with funerals and other things. But we try to set that day apart and treat it differently than every other day. I would challenge you to do the same. Some of you are workaholics. And you know what I've discovered in the Christian community? This is the truth. Workaholism is the most applauded dysfunction in the entire Christian community. You can have all kinds of other problems and dysfunctions, and you'll be scolded for it, but if you're a workaholic, you'll actually be praised. It's almost like a virtue to be a workaholic in the Christian 
community. It really is. You say, well, come on now, Pastor, you're being a little too hard. I don't go into work every single day, but you shoot emails out. You check things on the computer. You're thinking about work. You're churning inside. You're mentally preparing for those meetings. Is there ever a time, I'm just asking, is there ever a time when you really stop and say, this is going to be a day of rest, a day of worship, and a day of reconnection with my family? You say, well, pastor, I'd get clobbered if I did that. I mean, our competition, you don't know what it's like to be in business, man. Our competition would eat us alive. Have you ever given God a chance to show you what he would do if you really honored him in this Sabbath principle? On September the 8th, just a few weeks ago, Truett Cathy passed away, 93 years old. Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, one of the most successful fast food chains in history. He was worth over $4 billion. Now, if you've ever been to Chick-fil-A, you know the food is really high quality, especially for fast food. But Debbie and I go there not just for the food, it's good, but we're amazed at the customer service. In fact, we're just in awe. I've never seen anything like it. It's over the top. It's unbelievable the way you get treated if you go in a Chick-fil-A. But do you know what Chick-fil-A is really known for, both with believers and unbelievers? Although they have stores in malls all across America, hundreds and hundreds of stores, and most of those stores are open on Sunday and do some of their biggest business on Sunday, you'll never find a Chick-fil-A that's open on Sunday. While he was alive, Truett Cathy was often asked, why, why do you not open on Sunday? You'd make a killing. His answer was always the same. We're going to give our employees and their families one day a week when they can go worship God and they can reconnect as a family. Truett Cathy put principle over profit. Well done, Truett Cathy. Good and faithful servant. What would God do if you made that decision? There's one final thing I would challenge you with, and that is be creative. Use one special day to deepen your relationships, to deepen your relationships. You know what I pray for you? I pray for you that you would have the courage, courage to make this decision for your family's sake. Because here's what I'll tell you about family relationships. Those closest to you don't respond very well to multitasking. You say, well, I'm with my family, but I'm doing a bunch of other things. Those closest to you don't respond real well to multitasking. And if you don't somewhere make a hard decision to break this workaholic tendency, I fear this is going to, how I hope it doesn't, but I fear that one day you're going to wake up and you're going to think back and it's going to be a sad day when you say, you know what, we used to be in love, but now we're just successful. Wow, we used to really enjoy being with one another, but now it's all about the bottom line. We used to really be tight as a family and have each other's back. But you know what? Now it's all about what we can get from one another and from this business.
I hope, I hope and pray that never happens to you. Some of you hard drivers aren't convinced yet. And here's the logic that you're using. You're thinking, Pastor, you're just a little naive about the real world, buddy. If I don't really go after it, well, I've got so little time. If I don't really go after it, I'm not going to get what I want. The Hugh Harrison family in 1850 started in a wagon train because they were lured by gold in California. Gold had been discovered in December of 1848. The 49ers had gone there in 1849, but there were still lots of gold to be had, and wagon trains from the east were headed west across the plains, across the U.S. for gold in California. The Hugh Harrison party was among them. But on Sunday, they did something peculiar. They stopped their wagon train. To the astonishment of all the others they had started with who were not a part of their party, they said, what are you doing? They said, well, we're just going to stop here and we're going to worship God together. We're going to spend time together as a family to rest and kind of reconnect. And and we're going to give our animals a rest too. You can't imagine the criticism they receive. People would go by in their wagon trains with snide remarks like those pious fools. Look at them. Stopping out here in the middle of nowhere. They may have gold on the streets of heaven, but they're not going to have any gold in California because we're going to beat them to it. But what those people weren't understanding is that the trip to California wasn't a hundred-yard dash. It was more like a marathon. And life is like that too. True story, as the weeks progressed on the journey, the Hugh Harrison party began to overtake those that they had started with, who'd gone on ahead and who refused to honor this principle. And they eventually overtook them and they beat every one of them to California. And their animals were fresher and healthier in the process. What would God do in your life if you honored him in this way? Eric Little refused to run on Sunday. Now, I don't think he had a scriptural mandate for that. I don't believe God would have necessarily been dishonored if he had run in the 100-meter dash on Sunday. But what I respect is that that was his conviction, and he stuck with it. He actually went to the race he was supposed to be running in and had prepared for. And somebody said to him, wouldn't you rather be out there running? He said, yes, but I just want to do what pleases the Lord. But wouldn't you know it, later that week, there was an opening in the 400-meter race. Now, he hadn't prepared for that. And most people expected that sprinters, like Eric Little, couldn't last 400 meters. They would give out and be dead by the end and... They didn't know how to pace themselves for the 400. But Eric Little was allowed to enter that race, although he had never prepared for the 400. And as he went to the starting blocks, a member of the U.S. training team walked up to him and handed him a little piece of paper. It had a snippet of a scripture verse on it from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. And the words written on that paper simply said, Those who honor me, I will honor. 
Eric Little was so pumped up by that message. He not only won that race, but he set a new world record that lasted for 12 years. He became a Scottish hero. Not because he won a race. Lots of people run races and are forgotten. But he lived his conviction. He later went on to be a missionary in China and spent his life there sharing the gospel and serving the Lord. Those who honor me, I will honor. Father, thank you for your love for us and for the provision and protection that is in every one of these commandments. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to the best life possible. Help us to see where Sabbath fits into that. And I pray for my dear brothers and sisters listening that there would never come the sad day when they would say, oh, we used to be in love, but now we're just successful. I pray that that sad day would never come because all along the way they learned to pace themselves and honor you and acknowledge that you're the creator and we're simply the creature. So Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to live our conviction. And Lord, I ask that you would honor those who honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.